1: Those masters of the
0: universe are at it again. You
1: maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center. And today we have in studio Jason Richwine, one of our analysts. And the reason is he's put together a compendium of studies on the costs and problems of immigration. Don't worry, this is not an economics class, but it's an important product and he updates it periodically because it's peer-reviewed studies showing various different kinds of drawbacks from immigration. Obviously, immigration has costs and benefits, but there's this idea that, well, it's all just great, it's all win-win, no, there are no costs, and that's just not true. And this was a useful very important study. It's on our website at cis.org. Again, periodically updated. And I wanted Jason to come in and tell us a little bit about the reason for it, sort of what's the background, and then maybe go over, without doing any math, go over a few of the studies and what some of these researchers, again, this is peer-reviewed academic research has found. So thanks for coming in, Jason. And what's the reason for this? Why do something like this compendium?
0: thanks for having me, Mark. I think the initial reason for this is simply that we were getting a lot of requests from this from people on the hill, other think tanks, and it happened often enough that, you know, when we would get to'd be like, "Oh, again, okay, let me put that together." And we realized, wait a minute, why aren't we just making that a publication if so many people want to see it? And the other motivating factor, aside from the fact that there was clearly demand for it, is this fact that so often you'll see in the media a rather self-serving myth that immigration has only benefits. And and not only that, but supposedly there is a scholarly consensus as to that fact. And I have a few quotes, you know, from the compendium alleging such a a fact. And I think I actually mentioned a few of these the last time I was on, but it's worth re-mentioning because they are actually kind of humorous. Probably the, the one that stands out the most is one from Vox where they ran this headline. This is a quote. There's no evidence that immigrants hurt any American workers, end quote. Did you get that? No evidence and any American workers.
1: Just to interject, Jason, Vox, which is a liberal website, it's an explainer website to sort of give context to people. They wrote a piece once referring to the bridge that you could drive over connecting the Gaza Strip to the West Bank. I swear to God. So it's no surprise that they're going to be making claims that are baseless. But anyway, go
0: ahead. Well, it's not just Vox, right? So we have an article on Forbes which said that immigration restrictionists are on, quote, the wrong side of social science, a rather declarative statement. From Forbes, no less. I mean, it's a real publication, too. It's not Vox. Speaking of of uh, real publications, also the journal Reason one of our uh, well, let's not jump to conclusions. But anyway, go I'm ahead. sorry, I, I, I'm I'm really editorializing too much here. <laughs> Shikadami, who is a noted immigration advocate, had said that George Borjas, my advisor when I was at Harvard, says, "quote, literally the only economist of any repute who questions the economic benefits of immigration." End quote. So as I said, this is just nonsense. I mean, just really, really nonsense. And I wondered actually why that happens. You know, Why is it that so many people, I think, genuinely believe on the immigration advocacy side that this is the case, that there is such a scholarly consensus? And it just has something to do with the fact that the American intelligentsia is just so intellectually isolated these days. It's an echo chamber. And in their minds, well, of course, the science is on our side. I mean, it's always on our side, right? It's a lack of self-awareness, I think, that really affects many different issues, not just immigration. It really just – this is just an example, I would say. And I sometimes wonder actually if it's different in America than it is in Europe. I get the impression that the intelligentsia is a bit less isolated in Europe than in America, but that really is just my, my sense of thinking. It may and also
1: I- be immigration in a sense is a little bit of a special case too. Even though you're sort of making a broader point, the fact is it's part of our national mythology and I don't use that in a derogatory sense, just in a descriptive sense, it's part of the way we think of ourselves. Whereas, you know, Italy doesn't think of itself as a country of immigrants. So my sense is that the intellectual elites there may be a little less enthrall of that kind of idea. And so they're more willing to
0: entertain the possibility that there is evidence that it's a problem. So in America, this means that, you know, when Stephen Miller, who was an advisor in the Trump administration, proposes the RAISE Act, which would favor things like English language knowledge for immigrants. The immediate reaction from the first reporter to talk was, yes, but what about the Statue of Liberty? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, actually, th- that reminds me, actually, that the other problem I think the media has with some of this stuff is the idea of the one study. Okay, maybe there's one study, you know, that's contrary to the consensus, and so let us debunk it. And therefore, if we debunk that one study, then we must have restored the consensus. I remember actually this again to mention Stephen Miller, he was asked I forget what exactly he was talking about or what why the press conference was there, but he was asked, "Well, do you have any evidence that immigrants have negative effects like lowering wages of natives?" And, you know, since he was being asked to speak off the cuff, he just said the first thing that came to his mind, which is that George Boros had recently written a paper about the Mariel boat lift and you know he cited the results and that was that the media immediately decided that this was the one study that they needed to focus on and it's a good study but of course every study has limitations right it's not like we can do a randomized controlled trial of immigration and so you know with the borjas study was well low sample size and therefore the consensus is restored that's one of the, the other motivating factors for me to put together this compendium because I have you know, something like 30 different papers, and George Boras is the author of only a couple of them, again, sort of showing the lie of the Shikadamia quote earlier about him being the only economist. Anyway, the compendium is structured by first talking about the National Academy's book length report from 2016, and they have some excellent chapters in there reviewing the work on the labor market effects of immigration. and. I included a table that was included in the National Academies report, which has something like 20 different studies, the ones they thought were most important, showing the wage effects of immigration. And I forget the exact numbers. I should have counted before I came in, but it's something like 18 showing negative impacts. So even just the National Academies work from 2016 already kind of shows that we have mixed effects of immigration. It's not to say that immigration is entirely negative. Or positive. And if anyone tells you it's one or the other exclusively, they're almost certainly wrong. The purpose of the compendium, as I said, is not to prove it's all negative, it's to show mixed effects and to emphasize, as we try to all the time, that to come to a decision about immigration or what's the optimal immigration policy, you have to weigh the pros and cons. And yet so often the people on the other side of the issue will just absolutely insist that immigration is a win-win for everyone. So the starting off point, basically, for the compendium is, is the National Academies. And then I say, now let's look at new papers published since 2016, which also show negative effects. And these are papers, just
1: to reemphasize, they're in academic journals, right? These are not think tank papers, which may be perfectly valid, but the point is these have gone through the peer review process.
0: These are all peer reviewed. I certainly wouldn't trust think tank reports, would you, Mark? Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> these are all peer reviewed, or some of them are working papers published, posted by academics, and they're in the peer review process. But yes, they're all done by academics. And you know, just to mention a few that I think are most interesting, the very first article that I have highlighted here is from the Journal of Economic Surveys, and it's actually pretty similar in content to the National Academies, but it takes an international perspective. So over 50 different studies covering different countries, and here's a quote from this review. The author writes, Immigration can create winners and losers among the native-born workers, end quote. And it goes on to show through this comprehensive review of 50 different studies internationally that when you have low-skill immigration, the losers are low-skill natives because they're in competition with them, and the winners are high-skill natives because they benefit from the lower wages in industries where they're not working. So a natural consequence, as the author says, is you have rising inequality, exactly in line with what I was saying before about mixed effects. You have to decide how you value that. By the same token, the the second paper I have listed here puts the winner-loser framework right in the title. The winners and losers of immigration, evidence from linked historical data, again makes the same point. Some people are winners, some people are losers. So basically
1: what you're saying here is that intuitive understanding that just makes sense to people, that some people are going to benefit from this large federal program and other people are going to be harmed by it is borne out by academic research. This is almost like a common sense insight, but one that these studies put some
0: flesh on. Yes. And actually, you know, sometimes it can be difficult to detect. And that's what I wanted to get into. And that's why the academic studies are useful, even though you might say, well, isn't it kind of obvious? Isn't this basic economic predictions here? Yes, it is. But then again, it's difficult to find the evidence because it's just hard in a very complicated world where you can't run experiments, then people might insist that somehow the model is not true. And what I wanted to call attention to actually is sort of a burgeoning area of the literature that looks at the crowd out effects of immigration on the internal migration of natives. What's that mean now? Well, what that means is that there's this sort of mystery whereby there are Americans who live in economically depressed places and yet they don't move. Why don't they move? To where the jobs are, in other words. Yes. Why don't they move to the more economically dynamic areas? And of course, part of the answer is some of them do move. It's not as if none do. But there are a lot who don't. And one answer to that question is they're crowded out by the movement of immigrants from abroad to the most economically dynamic American areas. And so they disincentivize natives from moving there by taking the jobs that are being advertised. And so you might think that there should be this equilibrium that develops within the United States with internal migration. The wage shouldn't really vary all that much across the United States because when it does, people will move there to equal out the wage. Then it'll go down and then it'll be roughly even in the country. What they find is that natives are just less likely to move to those places in the first place, thus losing out on the opportunities. And one of the most important papers in this sort of specialized area of literature is a paper by Joan Monros in the Journal of Human Capital where he looks at the Mario Boatlift. Now, this is a topic we've talked about a lot. This was the the influx of refugees into Miami in the early 1980s. And a lot of immigration advocates have pointed to this to say that there really wasn't much of a wage impact or if there was, it was so short that, well, don't really worry about it. Monros's point is that one of the reasons why the wage did return to equilibrium in the Miami area is that you had natives both moving out and you had natives who might have moved in, but then chose not to do so because of the immigration. Interesting. So essentially, it's kind of like when,
1: was it in the 80s when the auto industry in Michigan was on hard times? A lot of people from Michigan moved to Texas. This was like a common thing that was covered quite frequently. And the 80s, there was still immigration, but it was really in the 90s when it got supercharged. So, you know, conceivably, what you're suggesting is that had that happened, say, 10 or 20 years later, a lot of those people from Michigan may not have moved to Texas, just to use that as a kind of an example
0: or an illustration. Another great illustration of that actually is the reverse of mass immigration. It's immigration restriction. You know, what happens when you restrict immigration? and The wonderful thing is, we have an example of that from the 1920s. And some of the papers in this compendium explain exactly what happened. So, in the 1920s, when immigration was restricted, the northern factories no longer had immigrant labor to rely on. There were no longer lots and lots of immigrants coming from Europe to work in these factories. So, what happened? You had a massive migration from the rural areas of America, also from Canada and Mexico, because they were not restricted. But the point is, these were both white and black workers who were moving to take these jobs, which were opportunities they would not have otherwise had if not for the immigration restriction. Roy Beck, in his book, Back of the Hiring Line,
1: talks about that in the context of black workers, and he's got some real interesting quotes from The Time, newspaper coverage and stuff, saying that some of these northern industrialists, as soon as the immigration wave was turned off in the 1920s... We're sending recruiters just driving around the South, just looking for warm bodies to bring up to the North to work in factories and dramatically increase their income.
0: So there are many other articles here that I find interesting. I know we don't have time for all of them, but just a few that I wanted to highlight while we have the chance. There is an issue that's sort of near and dear to my heart, because I've done a lot of work on it myself, is the issue of high-skill immigration. We've talked a lot about low-skill immigration and how it impacts low-skill Americans, But one of the points that I have been trying to make for a while with my work at CIS is that high-skill immigration has to be more than just a degree. That foreign degrees in particular do not seem to have the same value either in the measured skills of the immigrants or in terms of the income they make in America compared to natives or immigrants who have U.S. degrees.
1: So in other words, what you mean is the way we would pick high-skilled immigrants. Don't just look at like a sheepskin and therefore that's enough.
0: Right. If you want high-skilled immigrants, you have to do a lot more work than just to say anyone with a college degree can come here. That's really the point. No offense to people with college degrees here, but I think we have enough. More of them you know, are just typical Americans. They're not going to be the Einsteins that I think people have in mind when they hear the term high-skilled immigration. One of the papers I wanted to highlight on that point was one that looked at education in the U.S. and found that if they were to select a highly educated immigrant at random, there was a 25% chance that that immigrant would actually have lower earnings than a less educated immigrant in America. It's just kind of an interesting mathematical way of putting it. I'm sorry, you asked for no math. I gave yeah, you a little okay. bit of math. Yeah. <laughs>
1: In other words, if you picked people just based on whether they had a college degree or not, randomly? Yes. Yeah, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Right. And so, as you were saying, there's no guarantee that you're going to have these high skills come along with high education. An important point that we've also made in the past. Or high educational attainment anyway. In other words, credentials. Yes, exactly. One of the things I try to do with this compendium is when an academic paper is relevant to something that CIS has done, I like to advertise the CIS work right below my summary of the paper as well. And so there's a large paragraph there on that paper about CIS research. So and maybe you can link to it on the, on the website.
1: We'll have a link in the show notes to the compendium, the overall report we're talking about here.
0: I think you mentioned earlier that we update this compendium, and this is the third version now of the compendium. And as we've gone along, we've tried to incorporate more effects that are not just limited to the labor market. Labor market effects are really important, but obviously there's much more to immigration than that. And there's also more to the research than just labor market effects. There's also cultural effects. There are political effects. A couple of papers that I thought were especially interesting coming out of Europe, actually, with perhaps some relevance to the US situation. When Germany had this big refugee crisis, called a crisis that had a big influx of Syrians, right? In 2015. 2015, right? What the researchers found was that when refugees were concentrated in a particular area, you might think that apartment rents and home prices would go up, that there would be a positive effect on that because there's more demand and the same supply. But in fact, they had a negative impact on those prices. And what the authors suggest is that native Germans were just uncomfortable living in an area that was so culturally unlike what they were used to. And I think that's an important aspect of immigration that is sometimes underplayed is just the idea that cultural disruption can be a real issue and of course over time it lessens but the problem doesn't disappear entirely another paper in the US context this is from the education working paper series finds that as the immigrant population in a metropolitan area increases both white and black natives are more likely to exit the public schools Hmm, Interesting. This was not the case for Hispanic and Asian students, I guess primarily because the new immigrants were uh, Hispanic and Asian. But both whites and blacks either move to private schools or they move out of the city that's more likely to happen when immigration occurs. Now, I've got a trivia question for you, Mark, related to this. You were on Jeopardy!, so I I have high expectations.
1: I didn't win, though. I came in second. But anyway, go ahead. The
0: author of this paper says the reason for this behavior is homophily. What does homophily mean? That's a good question. Uh, H-O-M-O-P-H-I-L-Y. Yeah, that you
1: are like or have more of an affinity for people who are like yourself. Oh, exactly
0: right. Yes, very good. (laughs) So desire for cultural familiarity is what they ascribe to to that that phenomenon. I think that they're right. So anyway, I was saying before that we have the benefit of having the 1920s immigration restriction and mass immigration today. So we can look at the effects of both restriction and mass immigration, and usually it's just the reverse phenomenon going on. And so a good example of a cultural impact of restriction, this is a paper from the Journal of Comparative Politics, looks at the size of ethnic enclaves after the restriction in the 1920s. And what it finds basically is that it was a major aid in helping the ethnic enclaves to kind of wither away. What they found was it's not so much that it makes people leave them faster because people were gradually leaving the ethnic enclaves even during the mass immigration. But what restriction did was it prevented reinforcements from coming to the ethnic enclaves, keeping up this sort of semi separate cultural area. Once the reinforcements weren't able to come, the power of assimilation kind of gradually helped to make that ethnic enclave go away.
1: Interesting. Again, another intuitively obvious idea, but one that it's
0: good to see that there's academic research on. So the 1920s, I think, are a great goldmine for this kind of research. And another one that I thought was very interesting, and I think still has a lot of relevance for today, is a paper in the American Economic Journal called The Not-So-Hot Melting Pot, The Persistence of Outcomes for Descendants of the Age of Mass Migration. The fact that the melting pot sort of mythology persists, I understand why. I mean, it it seemed sort of a nice story to think that people come here and everyone just sort of melts together into kind of a undifferentiated mass. And and it's just not the case. I mean, the the research just keeps getting better and better on this point that if you look at differences in immigrants who first arrived in 1880, which is what this paper does, and then looks at, say, their earnings by nationality in 1940. Well, there's still a pretty decent correlation there. It's not the melting pot completely. And you know this isn't to say that, that there's no assimilation. Of course there is. But complete is really going too far. And the broader point here is that, of course, immigration changes America. And of course it does so over the long term. Now, you can argue whether it's good or bad or, or neutral. But the idea that immigration will have no impact on America in the long run, it will just continue being the same place we always were It's just really not borne out by either the 1920s data, you know, that looked at the great wave immigration or by today's data. Are there any more papers you'd like to discuss? Because I've got more.
1: Uh, Well, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, kind of your call. But actually, what I did want to ask about was something more recent. It's written by an academic, but there was a book that I remember American Enterprise Institute made a big deal of recently by some academics. And it has been used kind of as a marketing tool in the media for justifying unlimited continuing immigration. And you had taken a look at it, and it apparently doesn't really show, surprisingly, what the reporters are telling us that it shows.
0: Oh, I think you're talking about streets of gold. Streets of gold. Yeah, yes. it was
1: gold something. It always comes up, gold and this, gold and that. Anyway, yes, yeah, streets of gold.
0: Right. Economists Ran Abramitsky and Leah Bustan. I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that. Correctly quite correctly. I was disappointed by the book. I mean, I saw the AI conference and I, I I did read the book. Those two economists have undoubtedly produced some really interesting research over the last 10 years. They've put together, they've connected census data together, and they've also have data from Ancestry.com, I think it is, where they really try to follow immigrants over time and see what's going on. And if this book were kind of a, a popularization of their research with all the Caveats and the pros and cons and the limitations and such discussed. I think it could have been a really good book, but instead, it's basically just an advocacy brief for the pro-immigration side. That was disappointing. There was so much kind of eliding of negative research and putting such a spin on the the positive things that you got quotes actually kind of similar to the ones that I mentioned earlier on in the program. You know, the idea that, oh, don't worry, immigrants are assimilating at the same rate as they did in the past. It's really a rather simplistic take. And I go into why in a book review I wrote, the basic story is, number one, as they say, the great wave immigrants did not actually assimilate as quickly as some people imagine. So to say that todays are assimilating at the same rate is not exactly to say, don't worry about anything. But the other is that the assimilation rate is highly differentiated. There are some immigrants who come these days and immediately sort of join the upper class and are you know, getting patents and technology and such. But there are others who are taking many generations to reach middle-class status and in some cases have not really caught up yet. The best example is also the largest immigrant group over the last 50 years, which is Mexican-Americans. There has been a real struggle there for a long time with low levels of education earnings still not the same level as American natives. So really, there's a lot more complication there than I think they're letting on. And that really kind of pervades the whole book. And
1: one of the reasons you had told me earlier, one of the reasons you're surprised by that is that one of the authors of this book, this is a new book, actually had some research about what happened in the 20s, the kind of thing you were talking about and the consequences of the immigration
0: reduction. One of their papers is in the compendium. And in fact, it was in the compendium before I had even known about the book. It was one of those papers that had talked about the crowding out effect in the 1920s or the reverse crowding out effect, because after immigration had been restricted, that opened up opportunities. They have a strange take on that. You know, they kind of say, well, you know, it's the wage didn't really go up because there was this internal migration, which evened it out. I fail to see why that's a negative. It seems like a positive to me. It opened up opportunities for Americans in less economically developed parts of the country. Right, right. Interesting.
1: So we're not going to do any more math for people. So it's not an economics class. But for those who do want to pursue it some more, the link will be in the show notes and the papers on our website at cis.org. It's called the, what is it? Compendium of what? We don't have compendium. I think it's the only paper of ours that has the word compendium in it anyway. So if you just search for it, you'll find it.
0: A compendium of recent academic work showing negative impacts of immigration.
1: And this is work from just the past six years or so, is that correct? Right. Everything post-dating the 2016 National Academies book. Right. So, I mean, there's, you know, what is that? It's a couple of dozen studies here that are debunking this idea that there's no cost to immigration, that there's no downside. And again, that's a common sense insight that any big government policy like this, and immigration is just another federal government program like farm subsidies or the Air Force, is going to benefit some people and it's going to harm other people and that the point of debating policy is to, you know, balance those costs and benefits. It's like Borjas said in one of his popular books, who are you rooting for? You know, if some people win and some people lose, the people who win or lose your sort of perspective as to how important their interests are or should be taken into account is a big part of how you come down on immigration policy. In other words, if you think that government policy should sort of have a preferential option for the poor as it's put in Catholic terminology, maybe if government policy is weighing the interests of capital versus low-skilled workers, if your thumb is going to be on one side or the other of the scales, it should be on the side of the worker. If that's your perspective, then clearly this research suggests mass immigration is a problem. On the other hand, if you don't think it's a problem, then presumably what you're doing is putting your thumb on the scale on the side of capital because they're the ones that benefit from it. So I'm editorializing in a way that this paper is not editorializing, but it seems to me that's the implication, the conclusions you would draw from the paper. So, thanks for joining us, Jason, and we probably won't have you on when you update it for the fourth time because a lot of it's the same, but we will have you on at some point in the future when there's a new subject to talk about. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. If you have any comments or suggestions or complaints, feel free to email me directly msk at CIS.org. And if you get this podcast on a platform that allows rating or reviewing, please give us a five-star rating and hope you tune in next week.